good morning. It was a, a joy to watch the kids coming forward first thing and adding their Advent candle uh, to the display here, reminding us that we're remembering of this sense of the light which is coming more and more. And uh, I love watching them as well here, just moving Mary and Jesus that little bit closer uh, to the manger. It's always, it's a profound thing to remember every year, year after year, that we are on this journey and that we are kind of getting closer to the presence of Christ in that way. Um, our opening prayer this morning spoke about a familiar theme during Advent around expectation and the prophet's vision of renewal. Our lectionary readings, though, were a bit more opaque. Nothing quite says happy Advent like you brood of vipers <laughs> or the axe is already at the root of the tree, which is interesting. How do we square the text that we read from the lectionary with notions of joy, which is also, as we've, been, as we've heard, is partly what we're remembering this third Sunday of Advent. And uh, sometimes we even switch the color of the cloth on the table from a blue that reminds us of ideas of hope for the first two weeks of Advent. Sometimes we can switch it to pink to really pick up on this idea of joy, um, this flexibility and all these things. So it's great, we can, we can have this, this blue one still, that's perfect. But it does seem like kind of a difficult ask right now, doesn't it? Um, that invitation to joy. I don't know about you, but it, it does to me a little bit. I think last year I was so up for Christmas. It had been a crazy year. We were ready to get the decorations out, drink some mulled wine, and look forward to a better year ahead. We wouldn't be able to travel to be with family, but a quiet Christmas in our own home, something we rarely get to do, had some appeal and we fully expected to slide into 2021 and better things ahead. As we know, the gap between idea and reality can be significant at times. I discovered this a couple of days ago. Some of you have seen this. Uh, we had our work Christmas party and late into the evening it seemed good to me that I should try and jump over a rope and I want to show you the difference between um, idea and reality. We have it here for you this morning, and you're welcome. We watched that so many times yesterday. We laughed and laughed and laughed. It's good to be humorous and to laugh at ourselves. But I also think there's not, I'm not just being kind of self-indulgent. I think there's something, it's a, there is a picture in there of the gap between idea and reality that so many of us um, have expected. Anyway, thanks for laughing with me. Uh, it's good to laugh at ourselves and our own folly at times, isn't it? Are you okay? I mean, I'm bruised and I'm sore, but I'll survive. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for checking, Joss. <laughs> but 2021 has felt a bit like this, hasn't it? Uh, a failure to launch or even the year that never was. Um, you know that feeling that you get in early January when you're writing a date on a form and you have to pause and remember, wait, we just turned the year, didn't we? I'm literally still doing that in December and I've never quite got into my head we're actually in 2021 now. And I kind of pause, I'm like, is it 2020? Is it 2021? Or is it some entire other dimension of time altogether? And I've, I've frankly lost all track. And so the invitation to joy does feel a bit tough. Normally, I love a sense of ritual and making occasions of things. Our Christmas preparation often begins with an afternoon of choosing a Christmas tree, putting on some Christmas music, drinking mulled wine, possibly even making mince pies. No one else does that? No, <laughs> must be a British thing. 
Uh, this year, though, we've been a bit overscheduled, and instead we found ourselves last weekend squeezing in a quick visit to, to the tree lot. In between errands, we had just enough time to get home, throw the tree in the corner, and then head out to dinner again with friends. We had a few minutes to sit and gather ourselves before going out, and while the tree did smell amazing, three cheers for real trees, no fake ones for me, I mostly just felt homesick for Wales and for ease of travel, for nieces and nephews who bring a different sort of energy to the season. A week later, we still haven't got further than lights on our tree and it wasn't a creative decision. <laughs> we just haven't quite got there yet. So much for joy. So I want to unpack this whole idea a bit and see if there might be a way for us to engage, in fact, this invitation to joy after all. And to do that, I'm going to back up and relocate us within this Advent season. So I want us to remember that the church calendar or the liturgical year opens with the season of Advent. This is important. We begin not with Christmas and the birth of Jesus, but in Advent, which is to say that we begin, as many of us know, in a season of darkness, in a season of waiting desperately for the light to come. The church year begins then in exactly the place so many of us find ourselves. And this gift in the recognition of this beginning. The rhythm of the church year gives us the opportunity to consider our lived human experience and to reinterpret it through the lens of the Christ story. Most of us are familiar with the grand theme of Advent as a season of waiting and preparation. For first, for Jesus' first coming into the world and for his second coming that great eschatological hope that we have for the end of time. Christ is here, Christ is coming, and Christ will come again. And yet, unlike Lent, Advent is a period of waiting focused not on penance exactly, but rather on joy, the joy of anticipation. Joan Chichester has commented that Advent is the season that teaches us to wait for that which is beyond the obvious and makes us look for God in all those places we have until now ignored. And so on the first Sunday of Advent, we immersed ourselves in the Old Testament cry for a Messiah to come and save. We reflected on the importance of watching and of waiting. On the second Sunday of Advent last week, we reflected with Nelson on John the Baptist's invitation to repentance, both individual and systemic. We've lent into the notion of what it means to prepare as we anticipate the coming of the Lord. And so today, this third week of Advent, we rejoice because the Lord is near. It's also a season, or a Sunday, in fact, that we sometimes associate with Mary. And here I need to make a confession, uh, particularly to Shauna, sat here in the corner. I had intended to spend a good amount of time with Mary in this sermon, and then I discovered that the lectionary is beautiful, but occasionally confusing. <laughs> um, it, would be, it would be common to spend time on this third Sunday in Mary's Magnificat, uh, the beautiful song that she sings beginning, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This year, that lectionary text lands next week. <laughs> 
So uh, I'm not sure how Blythe is going to be speaking next week, but I wanted to make sure to leave that for her. So I actually haven't wound up spending too much time with Mary, but thank you to Shauna, who generously shared a bunch of resources with me. I did still enjoy reading them, so next time. Anyway, I have still found myself intrigued and curious about something in Mary's story. A week or so ago, we had a beautiful evening of cheese and wine with friends, and I asked around the table, what comes to mind when you think of Mary? Some immediately recalled Mary's courage as she assents to the invitation of the Most High, be it unto me according to your word. The mothers in the room spoke of the physical experience of carrying a baby, of moving through childbirth, the sacrifice of giving over your own body to foster and nourish the life of another. All of us marveled that God chose to come into the world not just through a woman in a passive sense, but in the deep relationality and physicality of Mary as literally the mother of God. That God comes into the world in and through a human body, a marginalized female, colonized body at that, is a remarkable thing. But for me personally, the piece that's always captivated me is the phrase, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. It's one of the last statements we hear directly from Mary in the Gospels, and for some, it's maybe felt like a meek or submissive way to shut Mary up. You've done your job, now onwards with the real stars of the show. For me, I've actually just loved it, and so I wanted to pull on this thread a bit, and I've been surprised by what I found. In my mind, Mary utters these words in response to Gabriel's announcement. Mary's pondering is a joyful statement, all warm and fuzzy, pondering things like, wow, I'm going to have a baby, and what, what color shall I paint the nursery? In fact, that's not the case at all. Mary utters these words much later in the narrative, after Jesus has been born, after the shepherds have hurried to Bethlehem to see this amazing sign, and after they have spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And it's exact, exactly this moment in Luke 3, while the shepherds are overtly glorifying and praising God, that Mary is treasuring all these things in her heart and pondering them. I've started reading Mary's response as more of a contrast to the response of the shepherds. The shepherds are overjoyed, but Mary is thoughtful, pondering. Is she skeptical, quizzical, concerned? She's marinating, yep. She's preserving like a fine wine. But I think she's stewing. I think she knows something the way only a mother can, and she's thinking, hold on a minute. There's more going on here. So I kept reading. Uh, I read Luke 3, and I read about Jesus being presented at the temple after eight days. I read about the boy Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem to, uh, during Passover and going missing for three days. And I was surprised to read again a literal carbon copy, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. What is Mary treasuring? What is she pondering? Because I'm hearing this story of Jesus in Jerusalem during Passover, missing for three days, 
And I'm for sure hearing Jesus is going to go to Bethlehem during Passover, and he's going to be now in a tomb for three days. And I'm wondering, do you think Mary knows? Not precisely, not the detail, but do you think this is what she's pondering? Do you think she knows that the mighty deeds the Lord is performing, the hungry being filled with good things, the sending of the rich away empty, does she think that that is somehow fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, but also not? That there is reason to experience joy, but also reason to be holding out, to be waiting for more. And so I want to turn to the lectionary readings for this week to see if they can shed some light. And I want to say thank you to Evelyn. I guess she's out with um, junior youth now, but I just love it when our young people uh, read the, the scriptures for us and daughter Deborah as well, and just, just great. And Evelyn did a fabulous job this morning. So, so much poise and just a real measured grace. That's awesome. So let's begin with the passage in Isaiah. Does anyone remember the Darlene Check, uh, Darlene Check reading this passage on a Hillsongs album um, in the early 2000s? Like, Shout to the Lord. They give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done. And I can't hear it and not hear that. Um, in any case, this whole admittedly short chapter is full of joy. This scripture is an exaltation of who God is. It would even be possible to hear it as a love song. And yet if we begin, the lectionary doesn't, but we could begin at verse 1 of the chapter and it will give us a broader frame to understand what we're hearing. And verse 1 of, uh, of this chapter in Isaiah says, I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. We read these joyful words then in the midst of chapters and chapters on judgment. And I think it takes this recognition of the broader context and all that is not well in the world to see this text not as a naive love song, but truly as an expression of comfort, precisely in the midst of the darkness. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. This sentiment becomes even more apparent when we realize that much of this text is actually drawn from the song Moses sings in Exodus, as the Israelites are escaping from Egypt, God parts the waters of the Red Sea and they can move through on dry ground um, while it closes on the Egyptians behind them. Hear those same lines again, knowing that context. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This exodus is the salvation that has come in Emmanuel, God with us, scattering those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, bringing down rulers from their thrones. It is in the midst of this desperate need and God's generous redemption that we encounter God and that we encounter joy. And so let's turn then to our final reading uh, from uh, the second scripture reading in Luke chapter 3. Last week we read the first part of Luke 3 in which John the Baptist prepares the way. Today's reading jumped straight into John's declaration. He brewed of vipers, again, 
Happy Advent. John's message is harsh. It's urgent. The axe is at the base of the tree. And it's also concrete. Last week, Nelson quoted Cornell West that justice is what love looks like in public. And if I might be so bold as to extrapolate, extrapolate, I've been wondering if justice is what repentance looks like in public. This is where I think John goes. Remember, John is speaking to people who have heard his message of repentance, who have gone into the desert to hear more, who want to be baptized, and he's saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's concerned that these folks, these keeners, are going through the motions that they don't understand the seriousness of what's needed. And John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not enough that Abraham is your father. Your lineage as an Israelite is not going to cut it. The axe is at the tree. This is not a seeker-sensitive message. And so the crowd ask, what should we do then? Tell us, we're in. And John leans in with piercing eyes and a steady gaze. And he says, the person with two tunics should share with those who have none. And the one who has food should do the same. Then the tax collectors, what should we do? John is equally firm and says slowly, don't collect any more than you are required to. And finally, the soldiers, what should we do? John's grip tightens. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. John's baptism of repentance calls time on all of the abuses of power common then and all of the abuses of power and privilege common now. Stop it. Give your tunic away. Here's what gets me. The people we're told were waiting expectantly and after hearing this stuff, we're told they're wondering if John might possibly be the Christ. Because this is exactly the sort of stuff that they're expecting the Messiah to say. They know that the point of repentance, the point of redemption, is justice. It's the right ordering of power and privilege, the proper distribution of food and clothing, of equity and equal opportunity. This is the salvation which is near. This is the salvation for which creation groans. This is the coming for which we wait this Advent season. And so we return to Mary as we begin to conclude and her enigmatic statement. There's something that she's pondering in her heart. I believe there is joy in her ponderings. Of course there is. She's rejoicing because there's right ordering that is here and is even at the moment of Jesus' birth present among us. We rightly celebrate that joy this third Sunday of Advent. But I believe that joy is held in tension for Mary, as it is for us. Christ has come among us and everything has changed. And yet, 
In this Advent season, we remember that there is yet a greater coming, more redemption, more justice, more joy that needs to come in and through us now. Joan Chichester says the birthday of Jesus is a simple, soothing story that makes few, if any, demands of the soul. It is not, she says, one of the great mysteries of the faith. The great mystery of the faith, which we both celebrate with joy and for which we continue to wait, is that God indeed drew near in skin and bone, that he grew in wisdom and stature, and that ultimately he turned the tables of power and injustice, filling the hungry with good things and turning the rich away empty. This is the song that Mary sang with joy, and this is what she treasured in her heart, longing for the day when it would be so.